Hey everyone and welcome to The Year Was, the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I'm your host Michael Montalvo and for the next few minutes we will swim through the river of time to try and find out what makes today truly unique. In this episode we examine the events that occurred... June 23rd. By the 1980s, Batman was little more than a comic character and a joke, at least to the majority of the world. For most, the only exposure to the Batman was Adam West and Burt Ward in the 1960s, and the Batman TV series that aired at the same Bat time and on the same Bat channel. Now, we have talked about the origins of Batman before in a previous episode, so I won't touch on that particular side of the story. Instead, we will look at one of Batman's many films. The bulk of this episode came from two articles, one from Rolling Stone and the other from The Hollywood Reporter. The year was 1989, and on this day, June 23rd, the motion picture Batman, directed by Tim Burton, was released. Surprisingly, the story of the Batman movie does not begin with Tim Burton or with Warner Brothers, but instead with Michael Uslan. Who is Michael Uslan, I hear you asking, and is that the proper way to say Uslan? I don't know about the pronunciation, and I apologize for that, but I can tell you who he was at the time this story takes place. Not to put too finely a point on it, Uslan was a Batman fan who negotiated the film rights to The Dark Knight. Back in 1972, Uslan was teaching a college course centered around comic books, all while he was still attending the college. This ultimately caught the attention of Vice President of DC Comics in New York, Saul Harrison, who flew the young Uslan out to New York to offer him a job. Following this, he would graduate with a degree in law and went to work for United Artists. While at United Artists, he learned what he could and decided that the time was right to make a Batman film. There was just one problem. Returning to Harrison, he was told, Michael, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. I don't want to see you lose all your money. Don't you understand that after Batman went off the air on TV, the brand became dead as a dodo? Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. Undeterred, Uslan retorted, Nobody's ever done a dark, serious Batman feature film. He left the meeting without the rights, but soon would meet Benjamin Melnicker, a former MGM executive. Together and over the next six months, they worked tirelessly until October 3rd, 1979, when they finally acquired the film rights to Batman and put a feature film into production. Ideally, that would have happened. They did get the rights, but soon found out that no studio believed in their vision of the Batman, and all passed on the project. Almost all. One studio was interested, but insisted that the film be reminiscent of the 1960s TV show, complete with on-screen sound effects in text form. You know the ones. To that studio, they said, no way. The trouble with their approach was that they had no star, no director, 
and no script. And they had trouble getting those because of the campiness of the 1960s version. That Batman was the only thing on anyone's mind. In order to retain the rights to the franchise, payments were due six months after the purchase, and then in intervals of a set number of years until a film was released. Not wanting to give up on his dream, that's what Uslan did, make payments for 10 years as he shopped around his project. Uslan fought for Batman, saying no or being told no to every pitch and studio that wanted to change from dark and serious to campy until someone finally told him yes. Are you ready for this? Mel Nicker, years prior, had met a man named Peter Guber, an executive at Casablanca Records, a company known for its disco albums. Mel Nicker had learned that they were planning to branch out and begin a film division, and despite initial objections, he agreed to meet with them. And they loved it. First on the phone, then in person, Goober loved the pitch and agreed to put up money for development. So, now that the film was in development, they needed a studio to release the film. Originally, it was set up with Universal, but the deal fell apart, and it then went to Orion, then to 20th Century Fox, and finally landing at Warner Brothers. Not much of a story with that one. With the studio in place, they needed a director, and they found one in a young Tim Burton. Supposedly, they considered Ivan Reitman and Joe Dante when earlier versions of the film were being shopped around, but for this version, they landed on Burton. Burton was fresh off films such as Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. But despite these successes, the studio was unsure about hiring the director. Allegedly, the words that got him the job were, This is not a movie about Batman. If we're going to do it seriously... This is a movie about Bruce Wayne. With the director finally in place, the search began for a star, and many were considered, from Bill Murray to Steven Seagal. Seriously. Apparently, a lot of people at Warner wanted a big action star for the role. The idea was to cast the role for Batman and not Bruce Wayne. And this actually reminds me of something I read about the casting of Ben Affleck, saying, Anyone can play Batman. The challenge is to play Bruce Wayne. And Ben Affleck can play Bruce Wayne. It's a bit irrelevant, but still kind of relevant. There you go. For Batman 89, they went with comedic actor Michael Keaton. In Keaton's own words, When Tim first came to me with the script, I read it out of politeness. All the while, I'm thinking, there's no way I'd do this. It just wasn't me. My name doesn't spring to mind when somebody says Batman. But I read it and thought, this guy's fascinating. I saw him as essentially depressed. I told that to Tim, thinking he wouldn't agree, but he said, that's exactly what I see. The choice was to play Batman honestly, so I started thinking, what kind of person would wear these clothes? The answer seemed pretty disturbing. This is a guy in pain. But Keaton was also reluctant, fearing that he would be typecast and stuck in an endless cycle of sequels and appearances, ultimately being remembered only 
for being the Batman. It's interesting that he would later explore some of these ideas in the movie Birdman. It's hard to imagine anyone else in the role now, as he is sort of the gold standard, next to Kevin Conroy, as the caped crusader. Fans at the time were a little less enthusiastic. In the days after the announcement of Keaton's casting, 50,000 letters of protest arrived at Warner Brothers Studios. Warner's own people would even push back at the casting, with chairman Steve Ross calling it a horrible idea. It was a major risk that the studio was taking, but it turned out to be the right one. Keaton would even bring some of his comedic sensibilities into the role, such as the dinner scene with the long table and the line, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. Jack Nicholson was cast as the Joker, Jack Napier, but he was a bit reluctant as well. The studio went around him and offered the role to Robin Williams and then went back to Nicholson with the news that Williams had accepted in order to force Nicholson into accepting the role himself, which he did and ultimately forced Williams out, creating bad blood between him and the studio. So bad that when offered the role of the Riddler in a third Burton Batman film that ultimately would never happen, he demanded an apology from the studio before he would even consider it. Billy D. Williams was cast as District Attorney Harvey Dent with the assumption that he would be brought back in later films to complete the character's arc and become the villain Two-Face. However, when the time came to reintroduce the character in Batman Forever, the studio opted to buy out his contract and instead give the role to Tommy Lee Jones. Kim Basinger was brought in to play Batman's love interest and photographer Vicki Vale. Supposedly, the studio wanted Michelle Pfeiffer, but Keaton vetoed the idea as the two had previously dated. Sean Young was actually originally cast but broke her arm practicing a horse riding stunt, and so the studio went with Basinger last minute. Rounding out the cast was Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon, Michael Goh as Alfred, both of whom were the only two actors to appear in all four original Batman movies, Robert Wall as Alexander Knox, and Jack Palance as Carl Grissom, an original character likely based on crime boss Carmine Falcone. Batman's sidekick Robin was also considered for the movie but was removed to be used in a later film, but that's a story all on its own. The film shot in London, occasionally being rewritten on set as new ideas were incorporated and removed from the story, and when the trailer was released, fans were ecstatic, many purchasing tickets to the films the trailer was paired with, only to watch the trailer itself. When the film finally opened, it grossed over $40 million and ended up at over $251 million, becoming the biggest moneymaker and film of that year. Batman was nominated for and won an Academy Award for Best Art Direction slash Set Direction, much like Helen Mirren's win in 2006 for her work in The Queen, and would remain the only Batman film to win an Academy Award until 2008's The Dark Knight. As for my experience with the film, I remember it being the first VHS that was really mine. A Christmas gift one year, and although a dark movie, one that utterly captivated me. 
I can remember playing with the toys in doctor's office waiting rooms and the excitement of seeing each new release. When Batman Returns came out, I received as a gift a comic book adaption of the movie and I read it and drew pictures from it until it was falling apart. And it's actually something I still have today, sitting on my shelf next to many more of Batman's adventures. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was Audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.